Coming up, hell on earth. Dude signs on the dotted line for a Triton. He's inevitably waiting some period of time for delivery. And in that intervening time, his mates and everyone else, they've all got an opinion. He's being bombarded. Mate, you should have bought a whatever, okay? Instead, and he's starting to second guess himself. So let us see if you can't help said dude in the comments, and I'll try and help him out here and now. Logan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap. Australia only. Website. Card. Now, we'll get into this quandary about the Triton and, you know, by extension, anyone else who's in a similar position getting bombarded by the great unwashed about a better vehicle they could have chosen in just a sec. But I wanted to address a couple of recent comments from you because I love you in a platonic and totally hetero way. Not that there's anything wrong with the alternative, but it also allows you know, a bit of bilateral exchange, doesn't it? Turns it into more of a dialogue. This first one I find particularly uplifting from a dude named John James. So JJ says, on with Justin, you drivel shit. I hate it when the education system leaves someone behind because that's grammatically incorrect. Mr. James, you can't drivel shit. You could dribble shit, or you could dribble, which means to talk nonsense, but you can't drivel shit, although drivel is a verb meaning to talk nonsense. If you drivel shit, you're saying you talk nonsense shit, which doesn't sound like the kind of thing that would get you nine or more out of ten for your English assignment. Dude, moreover, Mr. James, I don't give a shit what you think. I don't give a shit what anyone thinks. I don't care if they like these videos or hate them. I care if you watch, right? And if you hate them and you watch, you've got to ask yourself, what are you doing with your life, dude? Here's the thing, right? I'm not here because of some desperate cry for community acceptance. I'm here to inflict myself on you mercilessly. And if you're really hating it and you're sitting there, uh, just wearing it anyway, then that's on you, dude. One of the lessons I learned on radio was that the people who hate you are actually your most loyal listeners. And in, you, in the YouTube context, your most loyal viewers. So thank you, Mr. James, for your loyalty. I will continue to drivel shit and doubtless you will continue to watch, dude. And now a chap whose unfortunate name is Shags10. Maybe it's Shags10, which would be like legend performance, wouldn't it? Friday night down the rubbity. Shags10 says, Shags10 says, I disagree. The kinetic energy of chain versus strap is a huge issue. A friend is alive today because of the difference, and that was only a few weeks ago. Right, so let's talk about that the kinetic energy of a chain or a strap. We're not really talking about, in the context of four-wheel drive recoveries, we're not really talking about kinetic energy. We're talking about stored energy, like elastic strain energy. We're talking about slingshot, bow and arrow, anything that straws energy in this way and can release it without warning because it's got a lot of energy stored in it by virtue of its stretch. Obviously, in the case of a slingshot, it would be the stretch of the rubber bands that you pull back. In the case of a bow and arrow, it's the stretch of the limbs of the bow, 
which are released when you let the arrow go and you can see the result. Like, dude, a little bit of stretch in a couple of bits of wood is enough to skewer someone 100 metres away. That's fairly impressive development. I trained as a mechanical engineer. Mechanical engineers build weapons and obviously this is why we invented civil engineers because we needed targets, okay? More than half of the mechanical engineers on the planet just devote their time to figuring out better ways to kill people. It's kind of fun, I guess. <clears throat> anyway, let's think about snatch strap, which is a big elastic band, versus your typical load-rated chain, which would be this malarkey that is used in four-wheel drive recovery. It's eight millimeter chain, and it's just got load rating. And it's a good thing to have in the shop generally because you can get your slip hook and latch onto any link and basically you can wrap it around something get a little hydraulic ram in there and then all of a sudden you've got a really good way of you've got to weld two bits of steel together and they're not really conforming to the shape of each other you can just jack it down and hold it in place and weld it and never the twain will separate so i'd suggest that in four-wheel drive recovery it's a much safer idea to use something like bit of chain between two vehicles hook one over here with a shackle and then just hook the other one around here like that for example with another shackle right and then just drive away gently take up the slack really gently and then the mobile vehicle drives and the tractive effort of the mobile vehicle recovers the stuck one the advantage of the chain is it does not stretch and i know every physics laureate in the planet is going of course it stretches everything stretches and what i mean is it doesn't stretch significantly enough to act like a slingshot okay so with a snatch strap if something fails at one end or the other then all of that stored energy in the strap has to go somewhere and it gets imparted into the thing at the other end the widget that is unrestrained and that gets flung at the other vehicle whereas if you use a chain that doesn't happen because there is very little elastic strain energy in the chain all it does is transmit tension from this point to that point right and then if the chain breaks it just goes on the floor more or less I wouldn't stick my face or my nuts close to the point of failure. That could be a bad idea, but it doesn't perform like a slingshot is what I'm saying. So I hope this clears that up. I've got a pretty, you know, consistent position on using snatch straps, which is, dude, last resort. I know they don't get salty that way. They get salty like, it's so easy. But the problem is, you know, if it all goes horribly wrong, you can die or someone else can die and you'd never forgive yourself, so that's All right, now, let's get into this question from Robert Bolt. Yes. Bob Bolt says, you recently helped my wife and I buy a Mitsubishi Triton GLS dual cab, so firstly, thank you. Welcome, Bob. However, since signing the agreement to purchase document, and telling friends about our choice of vehicle, I have received several comments from, mate, you should have picked a Pajero Sport. So let's just decompile that. Like, there's no perfect vehicle. Obviously, every vehicle's got compromises. And all you've got to do is weigh up the advantages of the one that you're purchasing against the disadvantages inherent in the same vehicle and figure out if it's a good fit for you, right? Because 
there's never going to be the Goldilocks vehicle that was designed for left-handed serial murderers named Andrew or something, right? It, it just doesn't work like that. So if you're in, in search of the perfect vehicle, it'll never happen. You'll always be disappointed. I get that all the time. People complain about the ride quality, but it does everything else perfectly, you know, sort of thing. So Pajero Sport, right? What are the advantages of Pajero Sport over Triton? Now, I made a few notes on this, like how old school so that I actually didn't forget anything. The first thing I'd say is a wagon is better for some people than a ute because, you know, you get seven seats with a Pajero Sport and even if you only use them three times a year for the grandchildren or something like that, that's a dead set advantage. Whereas if you try and do that with the Triton, obviously you'll be on the news and you'll get arrested for child abuse. So there's that. Even though in the olden days, like coming back from soccer training and things like that, we used to sit in the back of our coach's ute and he used to drop us off all around the suburbs and no one batted an eyelid, basically. So anyway, your gear's a bit more secure in a wagon compared with a ute, unless you modify the ute in some significant way and put secure lock boxes in the back or, you know, roller tonneau covers with a lock and even then it's not as secure as the actual wagon. You know what I mean? So gear security could be a thing. It's, wagons obviously more weatherproof than the tray of a ute also. So that could be an issue, specifically with the Triton versus the Pajero Sport. Pajero Sport's got coils at the rear and an eight-speed auto, so it's a bit more civilised. I don't know if that matters to you. It might matter, and in that case, then you'd factor that into your decision. And therefore, that vehicle has better unladen ride quality than a Triton, which does tend to be a bit bouncy because of the leaf springs at the back. But I'd have to say, by the time you've got 300, maybe less, maybe a couple of hundred kilos in the back of a Triton, that uh, really does cover up all of that initial jitteriness as it sort of drives down the road. And I say that with some certainty because I own a Triton GSR, which is kind of like the GLS that Bob Bolt is uh, thinking about buying. So... Basically the same fundamental spec and just a bit of fruit is the difference. Now, the disadvantages of a Pajero Sport, incidentally, is that it's not as versatile as a ute, obviously, for bulky loads or for rough sort of loads like firewood and building materials and things like that that could damage the inside of a wagon. So if that's going to be a mode of operation for you, foreseeably, you might be renovating or whatever, you might be a lifetime gold fly, frequent flyer at Bunnings or something, then... The ute could make real sense. You could deck it out with some racks and it'd be more practical than Pajero Sport for you. There's no manual in Pajero Sport, so if you like shifting gears, uh, no can do, bro. Um, payload's a bit different. You get 900 kilos of payload in a Triton GLS versus 695 in a Pajero Sport. So when you think about it, in the context of a seven-seater, this is inclusive of accessories and people and all of the shit that they bring with them when they come with you. That's only about 100 kilos per person with every bum on every seat times seven, isn't it? So there's that. You just get more payload with the ute, which is hardly surprising. And the other thing about towing, although the tow capacity is the same for both of those vehicles... It's a bit more compromised in the Pajero Sport because it's at a 400 kilogram disadvantage in terms of the gross combination mass, right? That's just based on the specs. Do the maths based on the specs. And you'll. it's basically just harder when you're towing something heavy to conform to the gross combination mass limit of a Pajero Sport. So if you're towing something heavy, I'd say 
Triton's probably a poor choice. I wouldn't tow more than two tonnes with my Triton. I've, I've got a two-tonne aggregate trailer mass trailer, and I've had it pretty heavily loaded. I didn't put it on a weighbridge, but it must have been close. That was fine. But I just wouldn't tow more than that. And I don't think Bob is going to. So let's get on with that. And he continues and says, as well as lots of well-intentioned advice on what accessories I would purchase, I should purchase. Therefore, I have a couple of questions. Number one, have we chosen the wrong vehicle for what we are wanting to do? Being to tow our new camper trailer weighing in at 1,540 kilos on extended trips on dirt roads, sand, etc., hopefully around Australia. Number two, what accessories, additions, modifications would you suggest we make to our new vehicle in order to enjoy travelling safely and competently around Australia? Buying a new car is a big deal for us, and we don't want to make the mistake of buying one that for the same money we would have been better off with some other vehicle. I get that. I watch your YouTube videos every day, just about, and I greatly value your professional opinion. Ah, oh, dude, I hate it when you knee me in the nuts like that at the end. Like, nobody deserves that. So can you help me to understand which way to go? Yeah, well, I'll try and help, given that you've inflicted me on yourselves so endlessly, like, Jesus. Okay, so have we chosen the wrong vehicle? No, because the Triton's going to do what you need it to do just fine, dude. It's going to tow your 1,540 kilo camper like it's not there in most circumstances. And when the going does get hard off-road, obviously 1,500 kilos is a significant thing and you'd have to weigh up the viability of attempting something truly difficult when you've got a tonne and a half hanging off the back. But no, it won't be a problem to do what you want to do, your extended trips, little bit of off-road adventuring, bit of sand with the trailer, all of that stuff, done deal, okay? If you want to tow more than two tonnes, I'd be looking at a different ute because I think the rear geometry of a Triton with a big sort of over, overhang, it's cantilevered a lot from the rear axle line to the centre line of the tow ball, basically, and that allows the trailer to influence the vehicle doing the towing quite a lot because of leverage. And you can find plenty of utes with less of a cantilever at the back. But for 1,500 kilos, it's not going to be an issue. Now, as to the issue of accessories and modifications, one really obvious modification that I think might be warranted in this set of circumstances is a slightly more rugged set of tyres on the Triton. Because obviously utes are supplied ex-factory with tyres that are more compatible with just road operation sealed road operation and you're going to be doing a lot of not sealed road operation in that vehicle's life and therefore just a slightly more aggressive tread pattern might be an advantage those tires that you buy will also be a little bit more rugged in their construction so maybe a bit more resistant to punctures and defects of that nature you know getting shattered by bits of rock on tracks and stuff like that so that could be good i'd get a compressor and a tire repair kit because Tyres are really copping a fair bit of abuse in situations such as that. I'd get a spare wheel and tyre, like I'd carry two spares, okay? The factory one plus another spare. And if you're only going to do the extended off-roading sort of thing three times a year or something like that, you might want to think about getting a complete second set of wheels and tyres, so you've got your highway tyres for your normal driving and you just fit them for most of your operation. And when you're planning on departing for a big trip, you just bolt up the other four and you get rid of the stock spare and you put a 
fourth and fifth, or you, you put a second, first and second spare, get it right, spit it out, you get your two spares and you fix them somehow to the car, okay? That's going to make a big difference to reliability. You're going to need some recovery equipment. So you probably need a shovel and a decent jack because the factory jacks with cars are shit and a jack upgrade is really helpful. You'll also, and you want a long-handled shovel, right? So you want to be able to get right under the car without having to climb under the car at the same time because you lose nearly all mechanical advantage unless you can be kneeling down outside the car shoveling sand or mud or whatever out of the way. And it also helps with road building. You can just shovel whatever under a tyre if the chassis is sitting on some crest in the, the crown in the centre of the road, right? So you'll want stuff like that, but I wouldn't go too crazy with anything else until you operate the vehicle in that manner that you intend to operate it and you discover what its deficiencies are for you. Because it's really easy to go to ARB dude and just go, give us one of everything and I'll tell you when to stop. <laughs> sort of thing. People do that all the time. And it's a huge mistake because the mass is a zero-sum game, right? Every 100 kilos of shit that you carry or add to your vehicle is 100 kilos of stuff that you can't carry in some other way. So if you just go the full pimp with shit you don't need, you probably don't need a winch, for example, you know? You might not need a shade awning, or it, the shade awning might be really helpful to you. It just depends what you need, and without actual boots on the deck out there in the environment, understanding your needs specifically, doing all of this modification up front is a complete mistake. So just get the basics right. I'd also carry a fire extinguisher if I was going anywhere remote, because one of the most terrifying things about being in a truly remote place is grass build up around the exhaust, okay? Airflow gets really, really hot, catches fire, vehicle burns to the ground. This happens really quickly because it's properly alight by the time that you notice it because all the smoke's out the back and you're typically looking forwards. And if that happens, not only do you lose your mobility, but you lose your water and you lose your first aid and you lose your comms and that can be deadly. So a fire extinguisher is a really good thing to have when you're doing remote adventuring. Another good idea is to have a go bag, right, directly behind the driver. So if you notice a problem like the car's on fire, get out and grab your go bag and go if you can't put it out because your go bag will have some things that you might need like water first aid supplies, sat phone, things of this nature, things that can actually get you out of the shit because I wouldn't want to be sitting for 72 hours with peak summertime temperatures at 45 degrees, right? That wouldn't be fun. I'd want to be on the sat phone. I'd want an EPIRB, emergency position indicating radio beacon. You basically pull the ripcord and they send someone. It's a really good thing to have. So <clears throat> it's really easy to go overboard at ARB for all kinds of things. A common upgrade would be driving lights, for example, but you'd have to go driving in the standard vehicle and decide whether the standard lights were good enough for you. And if you wanted an upgrade on that, then you've got a baseline to go from. 
But as for just sitting around beard stroking, waiting for this vehicle and copying advice from friggin' geniuses about what you should do with your money, I'd just be going, uh-huh, 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 pass us another beard, dude, right? And just do your own research after you own the vehicle about accessorising it because doing most of this stuff beforehand is just a waste of time and effort and even more particularly, money. So I hope that helps. You might have noticed something that I've forgotten off the cuff here, okay? And if you have, how about you put it in the comments and you can just help Bob out and everybody in Bob's position. Maybe you own a trite and you do a lot of off-road adventuring. I don't. I just carry shit between here and the other fat cave and back all the time, you know? And it's not all that practical for a lot of the driving I do, which would be to Coles and back to pick up dinner and just normal domestic shit is what I'm saying, you know, going up the station to get on the train to go to the city. Not that practical for that, but when I actually need it, it's really useful to have. And it's saved me a shit ton on delivery too of things like that big heavy bandsaw just over there and, you know, stuff like that. The other real advantage of the ute for me is I can back it straight through the door here and I've got a block and tackle, like a chain block set up on one of the beams just there. I've got another one just above us to lift heavy shit on and off the table. And... I can back the ute up and crank some heavy shit straight out of the tray with minimal kind of back-breaking effort and it doesn't damage the ute or, you know, the environment. So that's kind of useful as well. And that's a real advantage for a ute that is not an advantage for a wagon because it's really hard to get something heavy, truly heavy, out of the back of a wagon if you don't have a forklift or a sort of high-lift pallet jack. So I hope that's help helpful and if you can think of anything else that I have left out please do put it in the comments and be generally helpful unlike some smart ass. Speaking of which, Doug V now has got a bit of feedback for me. So what you're saying is M12 is like 7 sixteenths of an inch that's in between 3 eighths and half an inch the more you know. I did say that M12 which is this is between three-eighths and half an inch because I was ad-libbing and going off the cuff. And it is between three-eighths and half an inch. Half an inch is 12.7 millimetres. This is 12 millimetres. The difference, obviously, 0.7 of a millimetre. And if you're in America or some other imperial joint, that's uh, 28 thousandths of an inch. The other difference, of course, between M12 and half 13 UNC is that Half 13 UNC is a 55 degree thread angle, whereas metric threads are 60. And the difference in the pitch is significant as well because the pitch of this one is 1.75 millimetres, which is 14 and a half threads per inch versus 13 for half inch 13 UNC. Okay, so they are different. You can't definitely screw one of these onto the other one or vice versa because they will just jam up and it'll be dogs and cats living together. But the, th the old thread science thing is really interesting. Of course, they make fine thread versions of both half inch and M12 as well with lower pitches. I think there's a couple of lower pitches for M12. I think it comes also in M12 by 1.5 and M12 by 1.25, but don't quote me on the 1.25. Pretty sure about the 1.5. If you know, if you're a freaking toolmaker, it's been a while since I thought about the equivalence of those 
things. So if I've made some glaring error there, please let me know. But I think I'm on the money there. But if I have, let me have it in the comments because, hey, I don't care. Now, Microkernel with his viewpoint as well, and I really like this one. Microkernel goes, there's something extra hilarious about somebody taking issue with somebody named John referring to his Christian name as such. There's hardly a more Christian name but for Christ himself. That's right. John is probably the second... Number two, the silver medal Christian name in all of history, isn't it, you know, behind Jesus. And I just don't get the way some people take issue with everything. If you refer to something as a Christian name, like colloquially as a Christian name, that's just how I've done it and how everyone I know does it. It's instantly understandable. And obviously the intent is not to offend. I wouldn't be talking about... I wouldn't be talking to someone wearing a hijab and saying, what's your Christian name? Because that might be offensive, right? But in the context of Australia, which is a secular democracy, but obviously the, the principal religion here is Christian and we have referred to first names as Christian names colloquially for years and years and years. I, the main thing about these kinds of fake offence, you know, taking fake offence over this and that, is there are better things to get worked up about, dude. There, there are just, if you're going to take offence at someone calling a first name a Christian name, then this is a battle that really is not worth fighting, is it not? You know, and if you really want to get out, you know, the, the reason people get offended is because in evolutionary terms, you know, people used to live in villages and dudes used to ride over the hill on horseback with bloody skewers and put everyone to the sword and taking offence, if you come home and everyone you know and love has been put to the sword like 50,000 years ago or something, then you would take offence at that and it wouldn't make sense for somebody to sit you down and go, mate, it's, it, it, it's really okay, because guess what, it's really not okay when that sort of thing happens. So I think some people just have this innate need to take offence, but in our modern society, there's really nothing salient to be offended about because life's really not that bad, is it? And yet a lot of people just want to be offended, so they find bullshit to get offended by. And to me, it just seems like a, a waste of time and effort because there is bad shit happening around the world that's manifestly something you should be offended about. And if you want to channel your offence into something worthwhile, let's not channel it into first names or you know, gender equality and things of this nature, because most of those problems, as I see it in Australia, have already been solved, dude.